An honorable profession is brought to you by Tech for America, an organization dedicated to providing a platform to solve America's toughest public challenges. For more information, visit t4a.org. That's t the number 4a.org. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. If you don't believe me, listen to some of our past episodes. Check out newdealleaders.org for more information. Today, we're talking with one of the brightest stars in American politics, Utah Congress member Ben McAdams. Nearly six weeks ago, a new Congress was sworn in, with many first-time members coming from contested districts. Ben was chief among them. He won one of the closest races in the midterm elections, defeating Mia Love by less than 700 votes. I've known Ben for a couple years. He's an attorney who previously served as a state senator and mayor of Salt Lake County. In these positions, he was a leader in developing social impact bonds and addressing homelessness. We're going to talk to him about how he's taken these issues to Congress, this crazy moment in our nation's history, how his family, including four kids between the ages of 7 and 13, are handling his new job, and his new podcast, Washington. Congressman Ben McAdams, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's great to have you. It's great to be with you. So first question out of the gate is, is Washington, D.C. as crazy as it seems uh, from outside the Beltway? I think the answer is yes and no. Um, you know, I started, I was sworn in right in the middle of this shutdown. So, um, it, you know, in that regard, I think Washington lived up to every stereotype. It was partisan. It was dysfunctional. We couldn't get anything done. You know, there was uh, nobody crossed the aisle for anything. And that was kind of disappointing, especially I was coming from local government where, you know, you'd never find yourself in a situation of a shutdown. We, you know, we worked across the aisle. We were pretty collaborative. We had our disagreements, but we listened to each other and we'd resolve our differences and move forward. So to come from local government and being effective and getting stuff done to uh, Congress in the middle of a shutdown, I think it lived up to every every stereotype. But then, you know, as as we kind of got in, we, we the shutdown ended with a bipartisan bill uh, supporting a path forward. You know, I think I started seeing, I guess, a different side of of Washington that maybe defied some stereotypes. On the committee, I've started to get to know people from both sides of the aisle. Uh, You get to know their spouses as they're out for, you know, we'll have uh, receptions or dinners that we go to together. Um, And you start to get to know people, and they're human beings, and they ran for, you know, regardless of what, what party they're from, they ran for office for the same reason I did, to make this country a better place. And we may not always agree, but we... We have some common ground and some common values. And um, so I think in that regard, it's been encouraging. And, and to see that, you know, Congress is populated by human beings who care about this country, who love this country, and are here to serve by and large. And so, um, you know, I think that's been my experience, both, I think, from uh, utter lows to to maybe some silver linings and some uh, opportunities to to hopefully see a path forward to heal some of the divisiveness and, and gridlock that we see in Washington. First of all, I'm glad to hear that there's uh, a silver lining and uh, we may have a path forward. 
One of the questions I had was the breakneck schedule of Congress, both with legislation and the demands on your time and now social media in the mix. Is there time for for thoughts, for conversations, to build relationships? It seems as though it's getting harder and harder for people to be, you know, regular human beings in this world. How are you navigating that? I, I think it is hard. As the mayor of Salt Lake County, my prior job, I, I thought there was no way I could be busier. And then I come here to Congress and I'm booked in, you know, 10 to 15 minute segments as people are coming in my office. It's a revolving door of, of nonstop meetings. It's, it's incredibly busy. And then on top of that, you've got to read the legislation, understand the legislation and cast informed votes. And so it's, it, I think it is incredibly busy. And I, I you know, I'll wake up and, and leave for the office at 7 a.m. in the morning. I get back 10, 11, midnight sometimes, uh, with just breakneck schedule. And so I think it is hard to find time to, to pause, to reflect, to think about these higher arching goals, and to build the relationships on both sides of the aisle that are important. One thing I found, though, and again, I only have six weeks of experience, but one of the things that I found are there are moments. They're out there uh, if you prioritize them and make them happen. So the Library of Congress hosts a monthly dinner series. Well, they're bringing in authors to talk about various topics. We've only had one so far. My wife flew out for that. She's planning to fly out for the second one. And that's a time to, you know, to sit down at a table, to have dinner with people from both sides of the aisle, to talk about something interesting. The first one we had, we had Ron Chernow, the author, talking about his book on Ulysses S. Grant. And so we talked about, you know, it was nothing that was the Congress was dealing with presently, and um, but talked about some principles and, and some great moments in the history of our country and to to break bread with somebody from the other side of the aisle and talk about their experience in Congress and balancing family and work life was, was uh, I thought, important. And so, you know, those are things that before that dinner, I thought, oh, I'm so exhausted. Um, if my wife hadn't flown out for this dinner, I might just take a pass. But I saw how important that was. And so I think there are moments there. Um, and it's important as a member of Congress to seize on those moments, to look for those opportunities where you can break out of the minute by minute and think, you know, a little bit longer term. You know, some of our committees will have informational meetings or retreats. And, and those are important, too, I think, to just step back from the 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 pressing minute-by-minute demands and think a little bit more longer term. So the opportunities are there. They're, um, it's tempting to skip those opportunities because you're so exhausted with the minute-by-minute. The times that I've made it a priority and participated in those things, it's been really enriching and uh, just says to me that I need to make sure to to carve out time to do all of that. We'll get back to the Congress and, and legislation, but you have a family. You have four kids between 7 and 12 you're now 2,000 miles away where you were formerly very busy as the mayor of Salt Lake County, home at night. Um, how's yeah. that going? How, how are you finding trying to balance family and public service? We make it work. It's not easy. Um, my wife, uh, you know, I was busy before, but yeah, at least I slept in my own bed. I could uh, help to put the kids to bed at night, have that time with them, wake up in the morning, uh, help them get ready for school, take them to school. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden I'm living in another state. So my wife effectively became at least, you know, four days a week, three nights a week has become a single parent. And so I think that's a challenge on her as she's balancing, you know, the mundane and, and sports 
teams and you know baseball practices and ba- basketball games and all of that to some of the serious when serious things we have two our, our oldest kids we have two teenage twins uh, they're 13 years old and they're starting to you know have the drama of being a teenager and um, I try to to be present by telephone or you know I'm home every weekend and get to see them on the weekends um, but I think that's been a challenge probably more so for my wife and my kids you know I come here and just get sucked into the job and uh, and you know I have to again make that effort to be present to be a dad to be a husband and uh, and and check in with my family and see what's going on and and then the, it just makes those weekend times important too but I'm, I'm home on the weekends and I have people who want to meet with me and public events and town hall meetings and things that I'm doing so it just has to it means I have to plan everything in advance and prioritize uh, spending time with my constituents and then spending time with my family, the, my most important constituents, my family, and spending time with them. And so it's a balance. We make it work. I think it is a, a, day, a daily struggle, but something that, that has to be a priority, and, and we're making it work so far. Is there something that Congress could do to make the institution both be more family-friendly and also just be more humane? Because it's sort of, I, I get the sense that, you know, you, you send a bunch of good people, but you send them into a challenging system and then we're all frustrated we're not getting as good a results i want you to be able to have a good relationship with both your colleagues uh and your family and is there something that we as constituents or you as a governing body would change to make it easier for people to serve in congress i think i think that's a great question and we've been talking about that with some of my colleagues i you know i um came in with the the largest incoming class since watergate and a lot of the new members who have come in have kids and, and, you know, some amazing women who are elected to Congress who are also balancing work and family and young kids who are at home. And so it's been a challenge for all of us. Um, but I think that on the flip side, it, it also seems like it's been a priority for the leadership of the Congress to make sure that we don't spoil this, uh, in, ruin this new incoming class, that they are able to balance family and work. And so some of the things that I think that, that work well they had some orientation events, uh, bipartisan orientation that are family friendly. So there's child care. Now my kids are, my youngest is seven, so we don't need necessarily child care, but they had activities and events that were family friendly that my kids could participate in, that they actually got to know some of the kids of other members of Congress. And so they start forming those relationships that make it so that they, when they come out here, there are things for them to do. My kids are going to come out for spring break and um, spend some time then. And then they're going to come out in the summer and they have some some summer camps that you can pay for for your kids for both members of Congress and staff. And so I think they do a good job of creating some activities that are here. Um, they also try to do, uh, you know, try to schedule the vote such that you know, when I, I do have to, I, I spend three nights, four days and three nights in Washington, but um, the votes on Monday are scheduled later in the day so that I can sleep in my own bed on Sunday night, have a full day on Sunday with my family, and then fly out Monday morning. I can take my kids to school, and then I fly out to D.C. after dropping my kids off at school. And then we have our votes on Thursday or early enough in the day that I can catch an afternoon flight home and be home in time to put my kids to bed. Um, and I think that's important not only to maintain the the work-life 
balance, family life balance, but also my constituents. I, I want to be back home in my district talking to my constituents, hearing from them to make sure that the votes I cast in Washington reflect the desires of my constituents back home. And so I think that the schedule is part of that. Um, and it's important to main, maintain a schedule that allows members to stay in touch with their family and um, their constituents and also do the jobs that we've been elected to do in Washington. My wife and I used to talk about work-life balance. Now we're, we're using the word work-life integration. So it's about bringing the family to everything and trying to integrate them into the things that I'm doing to integrate them into it. So I don't have this double life that I live, a life in Washington and a life in Utah, but it's all part of who we are as a family and to, and to be integrated and balanced in that sense. So I think, I think some of it just rests on the individual to find that balance. You know, we were elected, there's important work to do and it's a demanding job and it takes time. And I don't know how how to change that much, you know, with the demands on the time. We, my, my wife and I talked about the family moving here to Washington, and we just didn't feel like it was a good fit for us because what I've seen so far is when I'm in Washington, I am going, going, going from 7 a.m. to midnight most days. So even if my family were living here, I might not see them. So we squeeze in a phone call at various points throughout the day, but then make a priority that when I'm home, I try to have dinner with my family and breakfast with my family and then we take Sundays off that we get to spend Sunday together as a family and prioritize family time. So it's it's about making sure we have quality time. If we don't have the same quantity of time uh, like we used to, we make sure that we do have quality of time. And so I think some of it just has to fall to the members themselves to make sure that they're integrating their life, their family life and their work and their constituents and, and maintaining that balance. But it takes some assertiveness and some pre-planning to do that. It is a sacrifice that you and so many others are making to serve the country, and and it's not and it's not just your sacrifice. It's your wife and kids that are also giving up some of that quantity of time, if not quality. And so we we really appreciate that you're willing to to do that to to help serve our country. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your path into politics? Imagine someone listening to this podcast, sitting at home or in their office, and they're thinking about running for office, and you've served at the state, local and now federal level. What was your path in and why have you stuck with it? So I was, uh, I'm an attorney. I went to law school and was practicing with a law firm in, in Salt Lake City when someone who I've known for a long time, Ralph Becker, was elected as the mayor of Salt Lake City. And he came to me and said, hey, I'm looking for somebody who can be my liaison to, you know, Salt Lake City is actually a pretty progressive city in a state that's very conservative. And he said, I need somebody who can be a bridge between progressive Salt Lake City and our conservative state legislature, and asked, offered me the job to come and be his director of government affairs. And for me, it seemed like an interesting, an interesting opportunity to serve my city, to serve a place that I love, and maybe to bring some skills that I have to the table and, and some of my background. So my wife also says I've never been offered a pay cut that I didn't uh, take. So that was maybe part of the allure. But I took this job working in Salt Lake City and immediately was thrown into some pretty divisive issues. The mayor had been, um, had campaigned on, uh, this would have been, in, he was he was running for office in 2007, uh, sworn in in 2008, and he had campaigned on uh, enacting protections against discrimination for LGBT residents, housing and, and employment protections, non-discrimination protections for LGBT residents of the city. And in Utah, this was 
controversial at the time. It wasn't controversial in Salt Lake City. He was not going to have any problems passing it at the, at the city level, but there was talk at the state level about overturning it. And so I went to work trying to build consensus around this and finding a path forward that would gain, you know, uh, would enact these protections but would still receive support from our state legislature. And I spent six to nine months traveling the state, meeting with state legislators, talking about what we were doing, why we were doing it, and, and why we felt it was important. And we were able to build consensus that, that when Salt Lake City passed it, it was uh, November of 2009 that we ultimately adopted it. It was with support from our legislature, not necessarily support for the ordinances themselves, but deference to Salt Lake City's desire to pass this. And they agreed that they weren't going to take action to overturn it, that they felt that this was uh, within the purview of what a city should be allowed to do. Uh, and that was huge in Utah at the time. It was really satisfying to be serving my community, working for policies that I thought would make our community better, and then being successful in a very conservative state in, in building this bipartisan support for what we were doing. It was soon after that that my state legislator, he was the first openly gay state senator elected in Utah, resigned from the legislature to go back to his law practice. He was up for partner and wanted to focus on, on becoming a partner at his law firm. And I, I chose to run and um, was elected in this district to the state senate. Uh, people, you know, knew my reputation of a bridge builder, somebody who could get stuff done in a conservative state legislature as a Democrat by building bridges and working across the aisle. And I was in the state Senate for four years and, and furthered this reputation of somebody who could work across party lines and heal a partisan divide. It was then that I decided to run for Salt Lake County mayor, which is a much more moderate, probably red leaning red district uh, in a tough year that people thought was going to be hard for a Democrat to win. But I, I ran and campaigned on, you know, this style of leadership that was bipartisan and bridge building and was able to win uh, this election of Salt Lake County mayor in 2012 and loved serving in local government and just, again, more ways to give back to my community, to, to uh, make our community a better place and to keep what we love about about the community that I lived in. I love public service, and that's what motivates me, is to, to give back to my community and serve in a way that brings us together, that, that heals partisan divides and can actually accomplish things that will move us forward. And uh, it's that same commitment to public service that inspired me to run for Congress. You know, Washington, it feels like, has never been more broken in my lifetime. And I want to give back, and I want to be part of healing that divide and, and moving our country forward. And that's what inspired me to run for Congress in 2018. And, and uh uh, in a in a very you know a very uh, conservative the most conservative district in the country that's represented today by a Democrat and was able to win by because I had this reputation of somebody who was a bridge builder and a consensus builder and could could do a lot to heal a partisan divide. A quick announcement: We're taking an honorable profession on the road. We'll be live at the Tom Tom Civic Innovation Festival in Charlottesville, Virginia, on April 10th. I'll be talking to some really cool mayors. Please join me. For more information, visit tomtomfest.org. Now, back to my interview with Ben. How has the many issues you worked on at the local level, you're really a model for all of us who, are, uh, who serve at the local level and how you're addressing things with social impact bonds and addressing housing and homelessness. How have you taken those issues and applied them to what you're trying to get done in Congress today? You know, one of the things that I think has been um, a key to my success is to be a good listener. Uh, if you can always attribute to somebody who, um, who you're working with, usually some, someone who you might disagree with, attribute to them noble intentions, that they are 
they are they ran for office the same reason for the same reason I did because they want to serve and they care about this country and even though we may disagree about what's going to make this country better or how to make this country better uh start by ascribing to them good and noble intentions and if you have that baseline and then you listen to them in a way um to understand why they are taking the position they are what they're hoping to accomplish with the particular position i think it 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 allow enables you to listen in a new way and listen in a way that is consensus building and bridge building and with with an eye toward that to we we share a common goal and we share common intentions i found that you can usually find common ground and it allows me to further my goals and accommodate somebody else's concerns or somebody else's goals at the same time so you know it oftentimes requires creativity thinking outside of the box so we were when i was elected mayor we were the first government in the country to do a social impact bond for early childhood education i knew that you know i wanted to create opportunities for kids who were at risk who faced you know difficult life circumstances and early childhood education seemed to be a mechanism to do that in a state like utah though i knew that it was going to be important that i prove to people that this wasn't just another government program a wasteful and expensive government program that promises uh promises some things but fails to deliver that we needed to be rigorous and we needed to be empirical and we needed to be data driven and that led us to a social impact bond that was all of those things and uh allowed me to move forward with what i cared about which was creating opportunities for people uh who didn't have them you know it's the same when when it came to homelessness that we had a, a homeless crisis in our community like many communities around the country do right now and um i i was coming from a position of compassion but recognized that um other people who cared about homelessness were concerned about different different priorities uh, public safety was a a leading priority for someone who I worked closely with the speaker of the house i also care about public safety but when i was able to see you know his concern was to address an immediate public safety crisis that we could work together that there was common ground and we had different perspectives that actually weren't in conflict at all with each other but actually my ideas could make his approaches better and his ideas could make my approaches better and we were able to move forward by just you know really throwing myself into it with heart and soul and and working with anybody who was willing to work alongside me to solve the problems that we were trying to address we were able to move forward And diving into the issue around homelessness and how you addressed it, the last year was a remarkable year watching you try to maneuver uh, in order to in order to get results in your community. And I think I'll, I'll give the backstory, but you should correct me if I'm wrong in any of these details, which is you, like every person who's representing local government, was out advocating at the state legislature for more funding for homeless services and to get help in what is solving really a, a national problem, but left to the locals to try to figure out. And the state legislature allocated those funds, but basically put you on the hook to identify where to place a shelter. I think probably both deferring to you in your local government role, but also because they knew it's politically challenging and you were a rising star in the Democratic Party. And you really spent a year working with your community in order to to try to find and cite services for homeless. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, I think our legislature so uh, we were we were asking our legislature for 30 million dollars to invest in in improving and realigning some of our homeless services and we built an impressive coalition of faith community and business community and nonprofits and others who were working, you know, 
really in an unprecedented fashion in petitioning the legislature for these funds. I think our legislature was pleased when, you know, not only to they did they did come through ultimately with this funding that we were requesting, but it came with the strings attached that they wanted me to be the one to cite uh, one of these facilities. And I think I'm sure that there was a little bit of, of pleasure in the fact that I was going to get what I asked for, and it was done in a way that you know at that point I figured would probably cost me my political career. And um, yeah, and, and for I remember the, for the listeners at home, citing uh, homeless services is the most impossible job at any level of government to, to, to complete. So it, to have this handed to you is a monumental challenge. Yeah. Um, I, I remember when the request came and just basically my entire life flashing before my eyes and knowing what it would mean to be personally responsible for citing a facility. It's tough decisions. And, um, and too often in politics, people don't like to make tough decisions. You hand that to a commission that is faceless and nameless to make decisions like that. But, you know, I remember thinking a public service isn't something that I plan to do for the entirety of my life. And if I can do this in a way that's honorable and, and moves our community forward, and it costs me my political career, that's okay. You know, I'm not going to do this forever. And I'll go out on a high and I'll go out doing something that I'm proud of. And so I accepted the task. But I'm also committed to doing it in a public and transparent fashion. So I told my staff that I had agreed to do this and that we were going to need to schedule town hall meetings to get it done. And so we scheduled over the course of about a month, seven different public meetings uh, where we, we identified the locations and then we put those locations out for public input. Nobody liked them. Part of it was we were communicating and conveying that we were going to have a new model of homeless services where people are healing, they're getting treatment, not just a place where a catch-all place where people go and they get a meal and, and there's all the crime and everything associated with homeless services. We wanted a, a new and different approach to how we were delivering homeless services. So I had in my mind something that wouldn't be you know, a drag on the community. But people saw, you know, what doesn't work, and they were afraid that that might be exported to their community too. And so there was concern. And and in these town hall meetings, people showed up angry and frustrated. And, and I get that. I have empathy for them because they, they were worried what it might mean for their community. We had, in these seven town hall meetings, thousands of people showed up protesting and angry. Um, one town hall meeting turned almost seemed like it was almost violent. I sat on the stage for five hours um, and was yelled at by person after person who was upset that we would consider this proposal. At the end of the day, um, I remember the legislature had imposed a deadline. Uh, The deadline was March 30th, that I had to make a decision by March 30th. And so uh, just five days before that deadline, I remember thinking, here I am. I've done all of these town hall meetings. We have numerous locations None of them are perfect. They all have a a flaw. Some are better than others, but they all have a flaw. I'm making this decision that, you know, I've I've put my political career on the line and I have a decision and there's no good decision. There's there's some that are better than others, but no good decision. But it's, you know, it's an immense personal sacrifice that I've accepted this task and I want to make sure that I do it right. And, um, and was a little bit scared because I didn't know that I had the perfect decision. So um, it was at that point that um, I actually was at a one of my kids, he was in kindergarten at the time, our youngest was at his school program, and I just had this decision weighing on my mind and, and running through my head, and I leaned over to my wife and I said, I think that there's one piece of this decision that I'm missing. 
and I haven't seen it firsthand. I've studied it. I know the statistics. I've done the town hall meetings. I've heard from the public. I've met with the homeless services providers, but I think I need to go and see it firsthand. So I told her that I didn't plan to come home from work that night, and in fact that I wasn't going to come home. This was Friday morning. I wasn't going to come home from work until Sunday night. And so I went back to my office, changed into jeans and uh, a hoodie and had a backpack. And I, I left my office and walked downtown and spent three days and two nights living on the streets of Salt Lake City, uh, checking into homeless services, experiencing them, eating at the soup kitchen, sleeping in the shelter. I slept one night on the street um, and talking to people who were experiencing homelessness and asking uh, for understanding from them and asking their perspective on the situation and what, may, what might make it better. And it was really eye-opening to experience what was just two miles from my house, what life was like for hundreds of people who were living on the streets. And it really gave so much more depth to the decision I was tasked with making. Uh, you know, I came away with a few takeaways. I think it's it's hard. I, I would be the first to admit that in three days and two nights, I'm never going to fully understand what it's like for somebody who has hit rock bottom and finds himself in that situation. But I did get a, a glimpse of, of what it must be like. I came away with a commitment that we needed to do something, that we had swept this under the rug as a community for far too long. And for whatever circumstances, um, it had fallen on my shoulders to make a decision that would move us forward. And if I didn't make a decision, nobody would. And uh, it was worth my sacrifice to move us forward as a community. You know, I came forward with some other uh, understandings about how important uh, various factors were in the, you know, proximity to transit, proximity to the services and other things, how important that would be to the siting of facility. And I came out and, um, and we made a decision. And, you know, it was controversial. But uh, I think people at the end of the day, you know, Spoiler alert, I'm now a member of the United <laughs> States Congress. It did not end my political career. I think people are ready for leaders who will step forward and make tough decisions and do it at personal sacrifice and without regard to themselves, but regard for the greater good and for the community. And, uh, and we're moving forward with the implementation of that. We have a long way to go. It's not going to be perfect. There are going to be challenges with homelessness that we're going to have to continue to solve as a community. But I'm committed to staying at the table and, and solving them. And in our final moments, are you seeing that same level of dedication and commitment to service above even risking careers uh, in Washington, D.C.? And what's the hope as for those of us who watch the sort of talking heads scream at each other nightly. What's the hope that you see for governance and democracy in this country uh, from where you sit in Washington, D.C. right now? I'm, I guess I'm still frustrated with Washington. I think that I do see some hope, and I do see some good people here who are here who are willing to serve for the, the right reasons. I hope that that, you know, and, and also frustrated with um, the extent to, to which partisanship pervades Washington and and still questioning to myself, what can I do to be a part of ending this partisan divide and moving us forward as a country? Um, I think it is, it is it, you know, even though we move past the shutdown, it still continues to be a hyper-partisan environment. Um, I don't know what the answers are. Um, I hope to be part of, of finding those answers and to be part of those of the solution. Um, I think it starts with, again, just being willing to see good in other people who who may disagree with me and may be fighting against what I'm trying to do, but to recognize that they're they're opposing me because their motives are pure and good. 
and that's certainly not true for everybody in elected office. But I'm going to start by believing and and uh, and ascribing the best of intentions to people, and um, and hope that they ascribe the same to me, and that we can start to tear down these walls of divisiveness and partisanship, and find a path forward. Thank you, Congressman, and good luck both with Congress and with your new podcast, Washington. I uh, highly recommend people uh, listen to it. It's a it's a great insight into the first few days of a member of Congress or a few weeks a member of Congress trying to find his way and uh, make sure he communicates in a transparent way with his constituents about what's what's life like in Washington, D.C. and what, what he's trying to do to solve the problems there. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to talk with you. Thanks, Ben. Talk to you soon. Hey, do me a favor. Please tell your friends about An Honorable Profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Makes a big difference both to me and the leaders we talk to. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. Special thanks to KZSE for letting us use their studio today. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we're keeping this honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.